All right. I am very honored to be here with uh, Scott Ritter. Um, so Scott Ritter is a former Marine. Um, he d actually did academic work when he was a student on uh, the Soviet military or S Soviet Union era militaries, I think you could say. Um, he was a weapons inspector uh, in the 1990s. Uh, so a lot of the information that we have uh, and had on uh, Iraq's uh, you know, the state of Iraq's so-called weapons of mass destruction actually uh, came via Scott Ritter back in those years. Um, and since then, uh, you know, in recent decades, I, I guess I, you could say he's been a writer, he's written several books uh, and also writes columns. You can find them, um, articles. He's been writing a fair bit uh, in the current Ukraine, uh, during the current Ukraine crisis. So Scott, welcome, first of all. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so, Scott, uh, you know, our anti-war movement listeners, if they're older than a certain age, they will remember you, <laughs> as I do, from the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, where we all wish that you had been listened to more <laughs> than you uh, than you were. Uh, I think you're in the same position today in some ways. But I want, I, I want people who don't know to tell them a little bit, to, for you to tell them a little bit on your background, what you've worked on, um, and why, I, you know, I particularly wanted you to for the military analysis of what's happening um, in Ukraine. So like, can you just tell them like a little bit uh, about your authority to, to talk about these things? Well, my authority, <laughs> uh, look, um, first of all, let's just start off with some basic uh, fundamental concepts. Um, mm -hmm. I am not anti-war. Okay. I just, I need people to understand that. Um, I'm a former Marine. Um, I train for war. Uh, I hate war with all my body. Uh, but if there is evil in the world, um, you need people who are trained to confront evil and destroy evil violently. And um, that's what I was prepared to do. And if I were any younger, I'd be continue to be prepared to do it. I have to give in to age and recognize that uh, my knees don't work anymore. But um, but the you know I'm not an anti-war activist. Okay. What I am is somebody who believes that war is the absolute last resort, that before we go down the path to war, that we have to exhaust every possible venue short of war to prevent war. I, I, I firmly believe that um, old men talking in smoke-filled rooms is a hell of a lot better than young men dying in smoke-filled battlefields. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, I, I just need to be upfront because some people sometimes yeah. are shocked when I uh, when I give an answer and they say, well, you sound very uh, bloodthirsty. Well, yeah. uh, if you're going to click on my on switch in combat, I'll be the most bloodthirsty person you ever met in your life because I'm not fighting to lose. I'm fighting to survive. I mean, it's a life and death proposition. Um, and so we start off by, you know, with that, by, you know, I'll, I'll say that I was a child of the Cold War. Um, actually, the month and year that I was born was the month and year that the uh, Berlin Wall went up, July 1961. Um, my father was, and, and my mother, but she retired early for medical reasons, but my father was a career Air Force officer. Um, I was raised around the world. Um, I went to high school in Hawaii during the Vietnam War, uh, then Turkey and graduated in Germany, the front lines of the Cold War. Uh, when I lived in Germany, um, you know, we... It lived under the reality of uh, the potential for conflict uh, at every every day. Um, we had a nuclear storage facility uh, about five kilometers from our house. It would have been one of the first places struck by a nuclear weapon if there was a war. So every morning that the headline said Russia may move into Poland, NATO may take action was a morning or every time my father went to work and disappeared into the bunker for a week at a time. Um, you literally didn't know if you're going to wake up the next morning. You just went to bed saying, well, I hope. <laughs> That was a nice day. I hope we have another nice day tomorrow because that was the reality. Thermonuclear warfare was was it. I uh, I graduated high school and joined the military for the sole purpose of uh, being able to kill Russians. Um, when I went to college, I studied Russian history and Russian language under the, the concept of know your enemy. Uh, and the Marine Corps made me an intelligence officer because of my knowledge of uh, of the of the Soviet military and, and, and such. Uh, and I spent my first couple of years in the Marine Corps um, actively training to close with and destroy the Russian enemy through firepower maneuver. I was in an artillery, a nuclear capable artillery unit. Um, 
and we spent every waking moment focused singularly on killing Russians. Um, and then in 1987, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan sat down and signed the intermediate and the Marine Corps was tasked with providing Russian-speaking officers to go off to the Soviet Union and implement the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. That is a treaty that um, was, was designed to get rid of entire classes of nuclear-capable missiles that were destabilizing uh, the security situation in Europe. Um, and I suddenly found that my focus in life uh, went from killing Russians to working with Russians. Working with Russians in the, you know, towards the joint objective of peaceful coexistence. So, um, let me interrupt because I'm yeah. curious now. Did you, um, did you find you when you met them? Did you find that you did in fact know your enemy, or were you surprised by what they were actually like compared to what you'd been studying about them? You know, the thing about preparing for war is that even even if you're not in actual combat, I mean, I, I consider myself to be an open-minded person. Um, I was enthralled with Russian history. I had nothing but respect for the Russian people because of their history. Um, I didn't view them as 10 foot tall and I didn't view them as three foot tall. I viewed them as human beings. But, you know, book knowledge is so far removed from reality. Um, when, when I landed in the, the Soviet Union, I, I, I was working at a, a missile uh, production facility um, outside the city of Vodkinsk, which is about 700 miles east of Moscow in the foothills of the Ural Mountains. Um, this is a place that had been closed to um, all non-Russians for, uh, I mean, since, since, the, um, since the Civil War um, in, the, in the 20s. So when I was there and uh, I arrived in 88, most of the people there had never met a foreigner. It was a closed city. Um, then they damn sure didn't meet an American. And suddenly they have a whole parcel of them um, getting off the bus and uh, we're gonna live amongst them, work with them. Um, the, the, I was not surprised at the humanity of the Russians because I, I, I respect it. But what I was surprised is, is that they didn't hate me nearly as much as I hated them. I mean, I thought that every single waking moment of these, you know, godforsaken communist bastards was spent solely focused on killing me because every single moment of my life was solely fit, focused on killing them. And I, I found that actually they just wanted to live life. Um, they had a job to do. They produced uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are targeted at American cities. Um, they weren't happy about that. It was a it was it was it was a way of living. But they they were very professional, uh, very intelligent, uh, very cultured, and uh, very kind. Uh, with with a with a streak of humanity. And, and to be honest, oh, did after, they have did they have dumb questions about you, or did they have misconceptions about Americans that you were able to? They were actually extremely them? well informed about the United States. Um, they had their own prejudices about, uh, but I mean, to be honest, um, I'll give you an example. They would ask questions about uh, race relationships, relationships. You know, um, are black people truly mistreated in America? Well, how the hell do you answer that question? Uh, do you give them the standard thing? No, in America, everybody is treated equal. Or do you say, oh, hell yeah, racism exists in America. It's part of our fabric in society. Um, you know, we still abuse black people to this day. Um, I mean, how do you answer that question? Uh, they, now, they had a, a simplistic aspect of it, but I can't say they were wrong. Uh, they talked about capitalism. Um, is it true that Americans have homeless in the streets? Well, how do you answer that question? Yes, we got a whole bunch of them uh, because we don't have a safety net. Um, we allow our people to fail and uh, die in the streets, uh, malnourished and diseased. You didn't see any homeless in the Soviet Union. Um, and I'm not, but you know, their standard of living was significantly reduced, uh, you know, lower than ours. Um, they didn't have large houses with two cars in the driveway, not back then. Um, you know, they had small apartments, um, you know, very, very modest accommodations, but they, they had a, a vibrant life. They were happy. 
That's the other thing that shocked me. I expected a nation full of cold, robotic people marching to you know, Soviet music uh, and sitting up straight watching TV as Soviet officials uh, dictated uh, every aspect of their life to them. <laughs> These people live life, man. They enjoyed life. They, they worked hard. Um, but, you know, they were family people. They wanted to go on vacation. They had the same problems that we had. You know, is my kid studying hard enough in school? Um, you know, what, you know, what are we going to cook for dinner next week? Um, are we going to visit grandma next Monday? <laughs> you know, and, so. and did you, you must have also met Ukrainian, like Soviet Ukrainians, right? Uh, well, yeah, in the, in, in the Soviet Union, um, you, you had, you know, a cross-pollination po uh, of, uh, of, um, of, of the various ethnicities yeah. uh, that, that were there. So especially in the military, if you were dealing with military people uh, who weren't born and raised in Vodkensk, uh, you know, you've got Armenians, you've got Azerbaijanis, you've got Georgians, and you've got a whole bunch of Ukrainians. So do you have any hope, uh, you know, that those factors are still there, like that there's, you know, there are Russians and Ukrainians who have some memory of living together. And I mean, you know, is there, there there's there seems to me like really long connections, cultural and national and, and so on that that should transcend, you know, the current war situation that could well, form there, a basis for getting along again? I mean, this may sound like a, um, you know, like Russian propaganda, mm -hmm. but what is Ukraine? I mean, people, you keep, people keep throwing that term out there, Ukraine, as if it's a single, a singular homogeneous um, nation state. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's a dysfunctional geographic region that has been artificially cobbled together over history. Mm -hmm. Western Ukraine up until 1945 was Poland. Yeah, um, the people that live in Western Ukraine, Ukraine do not identify with Moscow as the, you know, the seat of uh, power. They identify with Warsaw um, or even some with older memories of Budapest because in addition to being Poland, it used to be Galicia as part of the Austro-Hungarian empire. Am I passing my history test, Mr. Professor? But uh, <laughs> the fact uh, is, you know, from 1945 until, say, 1953, 1955, the CIA funded a very active um, guerrilla warfare movement in Western, um, uh, in the Western part of, uh, of, of Ukraine. Um, and the Russians in suppressing it killed between 250 and 300,000 people, uh, lost around 25,000 of their own. We're talking major league warfare. Um, for a period of less than 10 years. We spent 20 years in Afghanistan, we being the United States, lost, you know, somewhere around 4,000 guys. And, um, and we, you know, we, we may have killed, uh, you know, 110,000 uh, Taliban over that time period. In a, in a, in a period of eight years, 300,000 Ukrainians were killed, 25,000. Uh, so that's full-scale combat. So um, with that kind of history, uh, you don't have warm and fuzzy feelings. The people of Western Ukraine do not like Russians. They don't even like Ukrainians. They only like themselves. And the, and the other thing about it, I was on a radio show the other day, and I laughed at this, but then the more I, I thought about it, the more I realized it was uh, one of the most honest statements uh, somebody's made. They said, you, you want to have an uncomfortable conversation? Have a Ukrainian, a Western Ukrainian grandchild ask their grandfather, "Hey, granddad, what did you do between the years of 1919 and 1945?" And the answer is, "I killed Jews." That's the answer because that's what they did. Um, you know, the, the 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 Western Ukrainians, the Galicians, the Eastern Poles, whatever you want to call them, um, are some of the most racist people on the planet, um, and they embraced willingly the ideology of national socialism. They were some of the most compliant subjugated people when it came to uh, willing to work with, the, with Nazi Germany to brutalize um, Jews, uh, gypsies, uh, Russians. Uh, they ran the concentration camps. They, um, Bobby R., 
you know, it's big in the news right now. You know, the, the missile at the, at the TV station uh, desecrated the Bobby Yard thing. 30,000 Jews were killed. You know who pulled the trigger? Western Ukrainian auxiliary policemen uh, taking orders from the Germans. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is when, when Russia says, hey, we're going into Ukraine to denazify, in the West, people, well, that's just Russian propaganda. It's not. It's not propaganda. It's real. And it's real in a big way, especially in Lvov or the Western Ukrainian area, the, the heartland of this hateful ideology where they worship a man named Stepan Bandera. And, and I mean, worship him by putting statues up, worship him by wearing Nazi uniforms and parading in the streets where crowds of people cheer. They have camps where they train the children to hate. They sing Bandera songs, et cetera. And they have formed these units, these military units to oppress the Russian speaking population in Eastern Ukraine. So when the Russians say, uh, we're gonna denazify, um, they don't mean we're gonna go in and, and, and um, you know, have, a, have a party. Um, this is gonna be violent denazification. So what I'm trying to get at is, yeah, the Eastern Slav, the Eastern Ukrainian, and the Russian, they're the same people. They might speak a slightly different language, but they're the same people, and there is a deep sense of brotherhood there, a deep sense of brotherhood. Um, even if a, a Eastern Ukrainian is fighting against the Russians, it's not a fight they take undertake willingly. Uh, it's like a civil war. It's like brother fighting brother, a cousin fighting cousin. It's, it's really bad. And yes, they can think back to a time when they lived in, 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 in this fraternal brotherhood type thing. But the Western Ukrainians, not on your life. They do not like Russians and Russians do not like them. And people need to remember that when, they, when the next phase of this military operation unfolds and Russia moves into Western Ukraine. So I want to get into the, the specific, the military specifics, because I know you've been following it really closely. But before we do that, there's one last kind of general question, which is because you have an actual military background, I know that it irks you to see like armchair, low, <laughs> low quality armchair analysis. But on the other yeah. hand, there are lots of people with these backgrounds on cable news that you also have a lot of uh, disdain for, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the analysts that you've pointed out are getting it badly wrong, um, despite their, you, you know, credentials as generals and so on, um, former generals. But, you know, everybody, it's inevitable that this moment produces armchair military analysts. So how could we do it better? <laughs> I mean, if we're, if oh. we're going to do it, <laughs> if it's going to happen, how would you go about trying to be better at it? Because uh, the the overall standard, I'd say in in North America is is pretty bad. So, yeah. Just as a, a way of background, uh, just so so your viewers know that I'm I'm coming at this from a little bit of uh, expertise. I was on General Shorshov's staff during Gulf War. Um, I, I planned major military operations and I executed major military operations, and I was an active Gulf participant. Gulf War One, right? 1991. Desert Storm. Yeah, the big one. The one that looked like a real war. Um, and so, you know, I have intimate knowledge of every aspect of armed conflict from the lowest level to the fourth floor level and everything in between. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that I'm God's gift to anything. What it means, though, is that, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example. If I took, um, let's say I had an aneurysm. And I approached a retired brain surgeon who maybe hasn't done brain surgery in 10 years. And I approached a farmer. And I asked for their opinion on what's going on in my head. The farmer can say all sorts of things because he's seen it on the internet and read it on the internet and sounds impressed. And people will say, well, about the brain surgery, well, you haven't been in for 10 years. But brain surgery is brain surgery. It's still the brain. And so he will know when the farmer talks about, you know, taking a, 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 a scythe and carving off the top of the head one movement and moving in with your hand, he says, that's not how you do brain surgery. It's wrong. Um, that's how, that's what's going on with TV right now. Um, you have a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about. And just because you've been in the military doesn't mean, you know, I'll give, give you an example. 
there was a guy on TV last night. He was a, a retired army major. And uh, he, you know, because right now one of the big things going on is thermobaric. Oh my God, the Russians are using thermobaric. And it's a war crime. No, it's not. Look it up. These are not prohibited weapons. These are permitted weapons. But, you know, legally speaking, every weapon in the world is permitted. You just can't use them against civilian targets indiscriminately. Nuclear weapons have been found by the International <laughs> Criminal Justice for it to be legitimate weapons under certain circumstances. They shouldn't be, but they are. And if you can drop a nuke on a city, then I can fire a thermobaric weapon against a uh, concentration of military forces in an urban environment, because that's what the weapon was designed to do. It's designed to drop a building, to blow up a basement, so I don't have to send in 100 guys to fight and die for that building. I just kill everybody in it. Um, now, you should make sure there's no civilians there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he's sitting there going, you know, and this is a guy, I'm an expert in urban warfare. And the average civilian is going to go, whoa, that's a, wow, okay, keep going, buddy, keep going. I fought in the Battle of Mosul. Wow. Uh, that means that you surrounded a city and annihilated it and killed a million people. Well, we don't want to talk about that. I'm an urban warfare expert. And then he looks in the camera and says, the use of thermobaric weapons in an urban combat environment is a war crime. I'm like, dude, you use them yourself. What do you think the shoulder-launched small weapon with the enhanced uh, warhead, that's a thermobaric warhead, did? Every Marine that fought in the Battle of Fallujah prayed for those weapons because when the Chechens dug into a building, they didn't have to go in and suffer the first three guys through the door dying. They could just sit back, fire the small, bam, down goes the building. But the average American watched that and went, he's a U.S. Army veteran, and he is an expert in urban warfare. He must be telling the truth. We have a General, Wesley Clark, commander of uh, NATO forces who engaged in offensive military action against Serbia in violation of international law, unleashed an aerial bombardment of a major European capital, Belgrade, for 78 days. And he's sitting there saying, the Russians are war criminals because they are bombing cities. What are you? Mark Hurtling, three-star general. It is a war crime to invade a country. They, they violated the sovereignty of a nation. Mark Hurley was an addition, uh, assistant divisional commander, and he invaded Iraq in 2003. The hypocrisy alone is, is stunning. What do we have to do better? We need a more discerning audience. We need an audience that calls up CNN and says, if you ever put that thing bad on again, uh, I'm not watching you. Uh, but instead, we have an audience of you know ignoramuses um, who themselves are amateur generals. I mean, every American right now thinks they can win this war. They know the answer. I mean, how do you win this war? No-fly zone, man. Give me a no-fly zone. Give me some A-10s to come in and go burp, burp on those trucks. We'll win this war. I saw, no a columnist, talking about. I saw a columnist say, oh, look, all the Russian uh, you know, trucks vehicles are, are lined up. Let's, uh, let's bomb them. You know, it's yeah. this is this could be our only chance to bomb them, and it's sort of like, oh yeah, it's a great chance. Try it. Yeah, your airplane won't get within 200 miles of that column because you you'll be picked up by the S 400 air defense system, which is going to engage you at maximum standoff distance. Even if you evade that, which you won't, then the S 300 is going to pick you up, then the S 200, and then as you come in, the Pantsir system is going to shoot you down. The Russians have layered air defense, which we have never encountered in modern times because we've been busy bombing goat herders and wedding parties in the Middle East, no air defense systems. Right. These Again, these people literally don't know what they're talking about. Literally. So, so <laughs> okay, so th this is good. We, we, I, th I feel like we've sufficiently discredited uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the people uh, that are, that are um, saying... Well, I'll just say oh, one other thing, and sure. not in not in defense of them, just so just so people understand. Let's put this in perspective. These people don't go on TV out of the goodness of their heart. They're paid. They're paid per performance. Unlike you, who are not getting paid to be on this. I don't uh, get interview. paid for doing any of this garbage. <laughs> you know, um, 
I, I, you know, but they get paid per performance and they don't get invited back unless they play the game. I had a CIA friend who, when he first resigned from the CIA, uh, spoke out eloquently and accurately against certain aspects of America's Middle East policy. Uh, and he, he got a certain reputation. But then as the global war on terror went on, they, uh, they, they invited him back. And he found out the hard way that if you continue to speak the truth when the truth is no longer convenient, you don't get invited back. And they had commissioned him at a rate of $250 in appearance. And he found that if you say the right things, you can get invited on TV five or six times a day. And you do big. that yeah, for two weeks straight, that's a nice payday. Good work um, if you can get it, yeah. And so you just play the game. And I confronted him on that. And he said, you got to feed the family, Scott. You got to feed the family. So understand that all these people are out there aren't just blowing smoke. They know they're blowing smoke because they're making money. They make money by telling lies. They make money by manufacturing a narrative. If they ever spoke the truth, then they wouldn't be invited back and they wouldn't get paid. All right. So now let's get into it. So we're on day seven or something. And yeah. uh, we're hearing from these type of people that you, we were just talking about. Russia's losing. Uh, they're bogged <laughs> down. Um, they're, they're stuck. They're desertions. Um, their armor's getting destroyed. Um, and on the other hand, curiously, while this is also happening, uh, Ukraine is... Um, barring everyone 18 and 60 from leaving, handing out rifles on the street. Um, these are- Freeing these, criminals. <laughs> freeing criminals. These are not what strike me as winning moves. Um, but but tell me like, is what's going on? Is this happening? Is Russia losing? Is day seven, did, did Putin expect to have- a walkover that didn't happen or well, the, the, yeah. the, the, the one of the funniest lines on tv is when i hear people say the russian plan isn't going the way the russians want it i'm like whoa so you know the russian plan yeah Did they know, the they know. <laughs> tell me what the plan was they know the russian so plan. that so i can see that you're telling me the truth when you the moment you say the russian plan uh, that implies you actually know what the heck the russians are doing which right. they don't um the, so that that right off the bat too you need to understand that the Zelensky government has since 2020, uh, and probably even before that, uh, been literally an extension of a CIA information operation. An information operation is a covert action undertaken by an intelligence service designed to massage a narrative for political purposes. Uh, not about the truth. It's the anti-truth. It's about shaping public perception to achieve a political objective. Um, the political objective in this case is to build the build Russia up as the enemy of the world, and uh, build Ukraine up as the friend of the world. Um, when, to be honest, I mean I've already talked about it. The, the 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 fact that Ukraine has allowed this hateful ideology to insinuate itself in every aspect of its government and military uh, means it's. Um, one of the most hateful regimes in Europe today. It's also yeah, one so of the just to say, like the 2019 election, I, I I looked that up and like the Nazi type parties polled like two percent, but yeah. there's there's yeah. still a so they're not popular in that sense, but there is some kind of infiltration of the state, and they seem to be very important in the military uh, itself. Well, the, remember that Maidan, yeah, the Maidan Revolution of 2014 started as a peaceful a peaceful protest uh, against um, Yanukovych. Delay in joining the EU or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. But it wasn't a violent demonstration. It was a peaceful demonstration that was seized by the right neo wing neo-Nazis who then orchestrated this violent insurrection. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the right-wingers are the only political party capable of repeating Maidan. They can repeat it at will. They intimidate every single political office holder in Ukraine with the promise of violence, political violence, if they don't get their way. 
Yes, and, they can't elect a majority into the parliament, but they can intimidate the majority that exists. And even Zelensky has a little bit of that. He's a little bit intimidated by them, probably. He's very intimidated. They, they, they told him right off the bat that if he, uh, if he accepts the Minsk Accords, uh, which would have brought about peace, by the way, yeah. um, that they would, uh, they would ransack his office. I mean, he's, he, he was intimidated. So, you know, we, 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 we have that aspect going. But the reason why I bring this up is what we're seeing unfolding on American television and elsewhere in the world is an information operation where the Ukrainian government is being coached by the United States to release information that simply isn't true. To give you an example, at a time when the Ukrainian army was being destroyed on the field of battle, which is the truth, they released the Spider Island myth. Oh, 13, Snake Island? Snake Island. 13 brave men who told the ship Last that stand. you know what, and mm. they died in a blaze of glory, and all Ukrainians must die. We're going to give them hero medals. None of it was true. Right. 82 men surrendered peacefully right. to, to, the, to the Russians. Uh, we were told of the ghost of Kiev. The Ukrainian fighter pilot flying over Kiev, shooting down six, seven, eight Russian airplanes because the Ukrainian Air Force is heroic. The Ukrainian Air Force at the time was destroyed. Um, see, so it's the exact, this is Orwellian in nature, the exact opposite. Zelensky allegedly saying, you know, the famous line that everybody's quoting now that made him Winston Churchill, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Do the investigation on that. Tell me where he said it. The only source is an unidentified U.S. intelligence official at the U.S. Embassy said Zelensky said this. They've got an impeccable record for telling the truth. Well, the and point is, unidentified you know, don't quote it unless you saw him see it. But yeah. we're, we're being played. Um, you know, the, the Russians have admitted that, um, especially early on, some of their convoys got ahead of the air cover and uh, were ambushed and destroyed. Uh, they, they say, yep, we... We did that. There's been, you know, it's similar to what you remember Jessica Lynch in the Gulf War, the seventh transportation company. They did the same thing. They were out joy riding around, thought they were going to go link up with people, ended up taking the wrong turn, ended up in the streets of Nasiriyah, and they were slaughtered by the Iraqis. Did that mean that the United States was going to lose um, the, the Operation Iraqi Liberation? No, we were going to win it. We just had a bad day. And there were several. And this Russians. is inevitable, right? Like you were saying, large-scale military operations, bad things happen. Yeah. But there was an interview given by a Russian general yesterday that I listened to in great detail. It was a very interesting interview. Um, you know how in the West you hear people say the Russians are repeating a, a Russian playbook. That's another one I like. What is the Russian playbook? Do they have it? Can they? Can Can we see a copy? I've been, study, <laughs> I've been studying the Russians my entire life. Um, yeah. I haven't seen a playbook, but if you got it, give it to me. I'd yeah, love I'd to love see the to, Russian playbook. Love to see it. But the Russians, uh, you know, the Russian playbook apparently is to level cities anytime there's a resistance. Like they leveled Aleppo. They didn't level Aleppo. Other people leveled Aleppo, like mainly the jihadists. Um, but what the Russians did do in Syria is work with the Syrian government to surround areas, subject them to military pressure, but then give them the option to leave. And the Russian general said, we are using the, the lessons of Syria in Ukraine, where we seek to surround military areas to encourage the populations to give up. And they've had some success. They've had some failures. There's been some fighting. But the last thing the Russians have been doing is leveling cities. I participated in a war that leveled cities. Um, we bombed Baghdad into the Stone Age, not really because we left a lot of it up, but the, the strikes we put on Baghdad are far greater than what the Russians have put on Ukraine. But You'll never the, hear uh, anyone say they're the Russians are following the American, the American plan. No. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, let's, let's just look at it this way. Let's take the Russian casualty figures that they've announced. Uh, they said 498. And the Russians claimed that uh, they had killed, you know, over 2,500. Uh, the Ukrainians have come out and said they've lost close to 3,000 dead. All right. So I'm going to trust the Ukrainian numbers on their dead. I'm going to trust the Russian numbers on their dead. In, in combat, modern warfare, in World War II, for instance, in, in the major engagements, 
victories were won with casualty ratios of 1 to 1.2, 1 to 1.4. Generally speaking, if I lost one guy and I managed to kill 1.2 of them, I'm going to win. Um, the Russians right now have a 1 to 6 ratio. That is not achieved unless there's a route taking place. So why reality, why is that? Is that just because the like Ukrainians know there's no chance? So they're no, they're fighting. The, the, the thing is in the military, for instance, um it, it, let's take some of the, 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 the big battles of annihilation that took place on the Eastern Front in World War II. Um the, the destruction of Army Group Center. Um it started off as a as a battle between German and Russian forces where the Germans sometimes won the engagements. Uh, because the Germans are very, very good, tactically proficient, operationally sound, and with proper command and control, they had the finest combat leadership in the world, and they could maneuver their troops. As long as they could communicate with their troops and their troops could interact with their fellow people to operate in concert with one another. That's unit cohesion. But what would happen is as the battle developed, command and control nodes would be taken out. They can no longer communicate effectively. Gaps would form in the between between the units. The command couldn't communicate. Units wouldn't get the orders. Other units would pull back when other units stayed. And the Russians, with their cohesion, overwhelmed them. Ukrainians lost all unit cohesion on day two of the war. They couldn't communicate. They couldn't coordinate. Uh, the units that, that could fight had to stay put because if they moved, they'd get blown up by the the Russians on the road. So they dug in and they fought and they fought hard and they're still fighting hard. I'm not denigrating the courage of the Ukrainian soldier. I am pointing out, though, that in when they do engage the Russians, it's a route because the Russians exploit the lack of unit cohesion, the lack of command and control to overwhelm the Ukrainians. But here's the important thing, and this is a point that the Russian general made. He said, our job is not to kill Ukrainian soldiers. If our job was to kill Ukrainian soldiers, this war would be over already. Our job is to give the Ukrainian soldiers every opportunity to surrender, unless you're with the Azov Battalion, in which case our job is to kill you. Uh, those are the Nazis. And the Azov <laughs> Battalion is surrounded now, right? They're pretty well, much they're, surrounded they're, and trapped. We keep saying that it's popular to say Azov Battalion because it started as a battalion. Then it grew into a brigade. And then it morphed into different um, different named units, uh, right. all of which share the same hateful ideology. And the way these um, these Nazis operated is they ensured that when the Ukrainian military said, we have to absorb you, you can't be independent militias anymore, rather than absorbing them into one big unit, they divided them up into the military and then ensured that their officers infiltrated the, the entire depth of the military. So we have a lot of the Azov battalion Loaded in, located in Mariupol. Um, you, you have other parts of the Azov Battalion uh, fighting in uh, in the territories of Lugansk and Donetsk. They were the ones who were you know, killing the Russian speakers with shelling and all that. You have others up in Kharkiv fighting. Look, I'll, I'll say this for these guys. They fight. Yeah. Not, which I mean, which also like means... Which means because they know they don't... They know what happens to them when they, if they surrender. Which is what I was going to say, which means that things are probably going to get worse as far as casualties um, in the coming days, right? I mean, if... For the Ukrainians, yes. Yeah. I mean, once, you know, in modern, in the modern warfare, once, once you lose the ability to maneuver and the Russians can shape the battlefield in a way that isolates you from a civilian population, um, you'll be dead in very short order. In Mariupol, it's difficult because... The, um, the Azov Battalion has prevented the civilians from leaving. Uh, they're actually using the civilians as a human shield, and it makes the fighting very, very difficult because the la Mariupol is a dominant Ru Russian-speaking city, and the last thing the Russians want to do is go in and slaughter the civilians there because those are ostensibly the people they're there to save. But it's very difficult fighting right now. Um, very so that's fighting. so that's like house to house. This, this is they're going to send house, street to street. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's ugly. But the other battles, it's just simply a matter of the Russians grinding the Ukrainians down. And sooner than later, I think we're going to see the total collapse of the Ukrainian military and 
when that happens, the floodgates will open and and it's 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 Katie bar the door. I mean, the All right, that's, that's a prediction. So which gets to um, I don't know. I don't know what you predicted, but when I the the month leading up to this attack where uh, Biden and Blinken and everybody was saying, oh, Russians are going to attack. Russians are going to attack. Russians are going to attack. And the Russian uh, foreign affairs, I think, was was mocking them and they were saying, please tell us when we're going to attack. And I was pretty confident that they weren't going to attack because I thought this is all part of the, um, you know, part of this information war that you've been talking about on the on the part of the U.S. Now, I've been trying to figure out how this could have happened. And and I wanted to ask you specifically because you understand military affairs. But it seems to me possible that the Ukrainian military forces with whatever help they were getting from the U.S. could have arranged themselves on the ground in some way that it would have been totally crazy for the Russians not to attack them when they did. Is that like, is that something that that could have happened? Or like, why do you think the, the you know, the, the Russian attacks came as such a surprise? Did it come as a surprise to you or? No, I mean, I, I, I had been saying for some time that the Russians aren't going to assemble a force this big unless they're serious about attacking. That didn't, but what I also said is that uh, war is not inevitable, mm -hmm. that if a diplomatic solution is found that the Russians won't attack. But I, I made it clear over and over again, that if the West continues to ignore Russia's demands for meaningful security guarantees that include the neutrality of Ukraine, um, then Russia will create a neutral Ukraine the old-fashioned way. They're going to earn it. Um, you know, so, but the way, here's, here's, the, here's where the U.S. failed in terms of the intelligence. There's a thing in the in the military, it's called the tip fiddle. I mean, it's one of those acronyms that drives civilians crazy. And it stands for the troop phased, let's see, tip, troop phased deployment list. And what it is, is if you're going to go to war, you don't, if I'm going to put 100,000 troops on the border, I'm not going to take 100,000 troops and put them all on the border. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to phase them in because as they reserves. come in, you need, you need reserves. It's not just reserves. It's how I phase them in. Um, roads, for instance, can only take so many tanks and trucks. So I can't put all my tanks and trucks up front or else I'm going to have a giant traffic jam. So I'm going to phase things in, in depth along with my logistics because this is important. Every soldier that comes in needs food, needs fuel, needs, you know, Every, everything that supports his his existence, his truck needs the same thing. His tank needs. They need ammunition, not just ammunition for one day's fight, but for a whole war. Which means I need ammunition depots that have sufficient stockpiles forward deployed with the trucks necessary to maneuver them in with the fuelness. It's a war is a very complicated thing. Time Heroes phased. Win. Time phased force deployment list. Just That's uh, it. the internet, show. the internet helps <laughs> the time phase force deployment list. And the, the Russians have their version in Slavic, but every military that does large scale operations. Now, a tip fiddle can be used for a military exercise because it's still the cut. You're moving troops, but a military exercise. If you're a professional intelligence analyst, like I was and like there should be in the military today, you can see, oh, they're not opening up the ammunition reserves. They don't have the logistics in place to move ammo for more than the 10 days they say they're having the exercise. Uh, the amount of fuel that they pre-located is only supporting a 10-day exercise. Um, Which, that there's another question there. So do the Americans and Russians both know exactly what's really going on from, from aerial and satellite intelligence? Like, is this a totally transparent to everybody? Not, I mean, it's not transparent as if the Russians are saying, this is what we're going to do today. <laughs> um, but the, the point is, it ain't that hard. Okay. Meaning, there's no science behind starting a truck. Right. <laughs> I see a truck. A truck has four tires. Maybe it has six tires. Um, I have a photograph of the truck, so I know what kind of truck it is. I, I know where the truck's made, so I have the manual. 
I know how, what its fuel consumption rate is. I know what, I mean, I know everything about that truck. I see a hundred trucks. I can extrapolate what I need to be looking for. Enough fuel to move a hundred trucks, a hundred miles over a period of day. So I start scanning the area and boom, there it is. A fuel depot that they've seen. I've seen trucks moving in, putting the, the fuel in. Each fuel truck contains X amount of product. Uh, they only brought a hundred fuel trucks in. Oh, that means they can only sustain this for 10 days. I mean, it's that's what intelligence anal analysis is. It's and then I'm listening for the chatter. I'm listening, you know, for people, hey mom, I'm gonna be home next week, or mom, I'm not gonna be home at all. Uh, you know, things of that nature. And you bring it all together to a picture. And then you you look at the deployment and you say, what are they capable of doing? The mistake the US intelligence was making, I believe, for political purposes was they were looking superficially at the Russian units and saying, oh, they could do this, they could do this, they could do this, and they could do this, without taking into account the logistical realities. Um, the other thing is the military doesn't operate, even in a nation like Russia, um, in an unconstitutional fashion. Okay, do you think that General Miley today could send 100,000 troops to Germany without Joe Biden's permission? No, absolutely not. Not, 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 not at all. And do you think Joe Biden could send 100,000 troops to Germany without at least going to Congress and explain what he's doing? Not that many. He could send no. some, but he could send some, but but even to some, after a while, he has to go and tell Congress what he's doing. Well, it's amazing. All these people that call themselves Russian experts don't understand that Vladimir Putin is a prisoner to the Russian Constitution. And the Russian constitution does not allow the deployment of Russian soldiers outside the borders of Russia without the permission of the Russian Duma. And that for Putin to be able to send troops in, he would have to go to the Duma and explain why he's doing this. And there is political preparation that must take place that hadn't taken place. And I wrote an article that said, they aren't going in until Putin does that. So anybody that thinks that Russia's going in tomorrow is smoking dope. Because in order for Russia to go in tomorrow, Putin has to get permission of the, and that requires preparation, a justification, which means we have to go in more time. The preparation this time was Lugansk and Donetsk declaring independence, not declaring, they already declared it, asking for their independence to be recognized by Russia. So they did that. And then Putin held discussions with the parliament and his national security staff. And then Putin Televised. signed a document saying, I would like the parliament to approve this. And then Putin went to the parliament and the parliament approved it. And at the same time, Putin said, and now I need you to give me permission to deploy troops overseas. And the parliament went, yes, we have to protect these two entities we just protected. That was a four-day process. It didn't happen overnight. And so, you know, my point is that you can't speak of an imminent invasion until you've accomplished that mission. What you can say is the Russians are prepared to invade. We we look at their troop deployments, we look at all this, but I don't I don't see them doing that until the political phase is but we don't respect in order see if we talked about the political phase, then you'd have to get into a discussion about well, what does that mean? What are the uh, Russians how trying Russia to has, How Russia has politics and parliamentarians and different parties and different interests, and it's not and just maybe, Putin. Right. And maybe a legitimate reason for intervention, something the West refuses to engage in. They don't talk about NATO expansion. They don't talk about, you know, the Russian concerns that have been articulated consistently since 2007. They simply say that Putin's a madman operating on a whim who is a risk taker. And he decided out of nowhere to invade. They don't understand that the Russians, more than the West even, operate on plans that, that are derived from budgets, that are derived from uh, meetings that discuss what the goals and objectives. This military operation didn't happen on a whim. This military operation was planned last year and the budget was set aside, the resources were set aside so that they could execute this operation. People need to understand that nothing happens on a whim in Russia. Nothing. <laughs> so, okay. So this is okay. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do. The, the main thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, is, is my next question, okay. which is we're watching 
um, the, you know, NATO um, trying to build up uh, an, some kind of, Afga the, you know, they said, we want this to be Ukraine to be Putin's Afghanistan. So presumably <laughs> yeah. there's Poland, which is going to be Pakistan. There are Nazis, which are going to be the Mujahideen. Um, and they're going to they're going to try to bog Russia down into an occupation and and so on, which, you know, I I don't think that's what really happened in Afghanistan anyway. I you know, I think I think there was a peace deal that led to the abandonment of uh, the alliance with Afghanistan. You know, Yeltsin basically handed it handed it to um, his counterpart in the U.S. Uh, Gorbachev agreed to stop. Uh, supply supporting you know to withdraw on condition that that Pakistan and the U.S. withdrew they withdrew and Pakistan and the U.S. didn't so there was all these things that happened that it's it wasn't just a matter of sending weapons and then Russia left right but anyway um, I want to know I assume that Russia has a plan for this because this if you want to talk about a playbook <laughs> I think this is the American playbook um, and so how, what, how is this going to unfold? I mean, is this, can Russia seal the Western border um, and, and prevent uh, this becoming an Afghanistan? Is it going to become an Afghanistan? What do you, what do you think of that whole, uh, that whole analysis? Well, the, the first thing we have to understand about Afghanistan is what made it um, so difficult was Pashtun tribal culture. Um, the Pashtun are a warlike people um, who have a culture that uh, lends itself to fighting. Um, I should tell you I'm married to a Pashtun. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, I, I, I would, I'm not. <laughs> not going to correct you. My, my experience in studying, um, you know, the, the Basmachi resistance movement against the Soviet Union and um, how that translated into the Afghan uh, the war with the British in 1919 and, and going on is the, the, the Pashtun have a certain reputation. Um, they, there's a reason why they haven't been defeated. Uh, and it's because it's not because they're a bunch of soy boys who, you know, uh, who, who sit in, in tea parlors listening to punk music. Or, um, or, or in my case, soy girls. Soy <laughs> girls, yeah. You know, they, 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 they're, 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 they're pretty tough. Um, I bring that up because the society that exists in Ukraine today is the antithesis of the Pashtun tribal culture. It's a society that's been softened by decades of exposure to Western excesses. Um, these are people who would prefer to spend their time in a cafe than in combat. Um, they can talk big. I mean, I've, I've never seen more courageous people in my life than the brave women and men who get on TV and talk about how they're willing to die for their country. Um, the test will come when it's time to die for their country. That's uh, not fair, I, Scott. There are very courageous Americans and Canadians also on Twitter that are um, that are denouncing. I denounce those Americans and Canadians as well. <laughs> um, I'm a big believer that uh, action speaks louder than words. And if you're so intent on dying for your country, quit telling me about it and go forth and get the uniform, the weapons and the training necessary to accomplish that mission. Uh, because the Russians are more than happy to help you die for your country. Um, you know, the, the, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is there's a psychology of resistance that's derived from a cultural preparedness to accept infinite um, pain and suffering. Uh, the Russians pulled it off during World War II with the partisan movement. The French did the same with their underground. Uh, these weren't soft people. These were hard people. These were people prepared not just to kill, but to die. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people in, uh, in, in Ukraine that are capable of this. Uh, there's not enough of them. And the ones that do exist have uh, been suckered in by the West into buying into this CIA notion that if we train you in unconventional warfare and irregular warfare, that you are going to be able to successfully run a resistance against um, the Russians. Um, the fact that you and I know about the CIA-funded uh, unconventional warfare training that's been ongoing since 2015 should tell you everything you need to know about how successful that operation has been in keeping it secret from the Russians. Um, so the mere fact that we know about it means they have failed. Um, the Russians 
I know from firsthand experience are very good at intelligence, very good. Um, they are extraordinarily good at human intelligence. Uh, they're very good at getting people on the inside. Uh, and the notion that this, this non-covert CIA-funded propaganda exercise hasn't been thoroughly infiltrated by the Russians to the extent that they know everybody who received the training, every weapons location, every commander, every communications line um, is absurd. And, and that, was also, it... that was also probably impossible or close to impossible in Afghanistan for the Russians to do. It's very difficult. It's very, but there's a difference between Afghanistan, yeah. where you have these cultural differences. How do you infiltrate a Pashtun tribal clan yeah. where everybody, everybody knows everybody? everybody. Yeah. You don't. Um, but how do you infiltrate Ukraine, where you have families intermingled, where you have businessmen traveling back and forth, where you have societies thoroughly integrated? Um, it's the easiest thing in the world. The Russians did it. It's their backyard. Um, this notion of a resistance is absurd in the extreme. This notion also, too, that somehow NATO can uh, bring together this uh, foreign legion of 20 to 30,000 um, brave Western fighters uh, to go into Ukraine is also absurd. Um, any military professional will tell you that the worst thing in the world you can do is put 10,000 people together and, and, and call them a military unit. Really? A bunch of criminals. Yeah. Well, I don't care what they are. They haven't trained together. They haven't communicated together. They haven't operated together. They haven't done logistics together. They don't have a shared command and control system, which a recognized is, chain of command. Yeah. All again, that's going to happen to them. The, a, tribal, a tribal people kind of has a lot of that already. Have all that already. When the tribal leader says jump, everybody says, how high? When he right. says, I appoint Muhammad to be the guy in charge of this particular team, they know that if they don't listen to Muhammad, the dude's going to get them when they come home. Um, they have a built-in command structure, a built-in discipline, a built-in everything. They are born as a resistance movement, whereas the soy boys in, uh, in Ukraine aren't. And the same thing with the tea drinkers that are coming in from Europe. All these retire, I mean, I don't know. I know one thing I know about most military people is when they leave the military, they put on about 20 or 30 pounds um, they, because they stop living the hard life and they start living the easy life. So we got a bunch of overweight, cholesterol-driven wannabes who are coming in, putting on a uniform where the buttons are ready to pop off, and they think they're going to go beat the Russian army. The Russians are going to slaughter them like dogs. But that's just, uh, you know. So they will, but you think you think they will be able to get in? That's one problem they'll. Well, I mean, it's a big border right now. They'll be able to get in. Do I think the Russians will eventually seal off the border? Yes, that's their plan. When you when, when when Russians say we're going to denazify, yeah, they aren't joking, and it doesn't mean simply taking out the Azov battalion. Denazification means taking out the ideology, ripping it out root and stem. That means they're going to have to occupy Lvov. They're going to have to drive these people out of Ukraine, into Poland, into Hungary, into Europe, but out of Ukraine, and then prevent them from coming back in. And anybody of this ideology that doesn't want to leave Ukraine will die in Ukraine. The Russians are messing. One thing I learned about living in Russia with the Russians is they take World War II more serious than anybody in the world. Yeah. They have to. They lost 23 to 30 million people. Yeah. They lost 12 to 15 million soldiers, all in the name of fighting Nazi ideology. They hate the Nazis with a passion that goes beyond belief. But we in the West sit here and say, you know, okay. you're just exaggerating, man. It's yeah, just I've heard I've heard them say, you know, Putin is Putin has ultra right wing support and there's Nazis in Russia, too. That kind of that kind of thing. Not like uh, this. There's there, 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 you know, there are. Look, I was in Russia and I know that in the in the suburb of Lubertsi, uh, there were uh, there were these weightlifters that uh, working class weightlifters that um, like to to play uh, horse Wetzel and uh, and do the Nazi salute. Mm -hmm. I also know that most of them ended up in prison and, and and bear prison tattoos because Russian society will not tolerate them at all. And if you think there's a Nazi near Putin, you're wrong. There might be a right wing Russian nationalist near Putin, mm -hmm. but it ain't a swastika toting Nazi. Uh, that is reviled. That is That's hated. Traitorous, probably. It is treason in the extreme. Which again. 
This is the kind, this is the emotional aspect of this war that most people don't understand. Two things. The Russians that came in don't view the Ukrainians as the enemy. They view them as their brother. They view them as their cousin. This war hurts Russia emotionally, morally, more than anybody can possibly know. This is a very, very difficult war for Russia to fight. Two, the Russians hate the Nazis with a visceral passion that, that we in the West can't understand. Uh, I, I can tell you right now, I've seen some videos of the Azov people taken prisoner, and they make them take their shirts off and they show the, the, the hate-filled tattoos. And um, fortunately, they turned the video off. But I can tell you that this did not end well for the Azov prisoner. Uh, that Azov prisoner was shortly taken into the woods and executed on the spot. That is the fate of them. And I'll tell you also, it's the fate of all these overweight Western mer mercenaries ready to go in. The uh, Russian general spoke the other day and he said, the best thing that's going to happen to you is that we arrest you and treat you like a criminal. That's the best thing that's going to happen to you. So, <laughs> and he left so open what do, the worst thing is. <laughs> you know? So I guess, I guess we like moving towards wrapping up, you, you do see an occupation of all of Ukraine no, in the future. Oh, you not, don't? Not, oh, okay. Not, okay. not a military occupation. I see the Russians sealing the border, but I see the Russians bringing in a Ukrainian government as soon as possible. Look at what the Russians have done in every city they've occupied. They leave the Ukrainian flag flying. Mm -hmm. They keep the Ukrainian administration in place. They tell them, continue to govern as if nothing happened. Um, they're not, they're, there will be, I believe, some some adjustments to the border. For instance, Russia will never again lose control of the water supply to the Crimea. Mm -hmm. um, and I do believe that Lugansk and Donetsk are lost to Ukraine forever. And but probably Ukraine some, itself, presumably some more of Eastern, presumably they'll a little bits and pieces, some. but I don't, I don't see them carving a whole bunch out. Um, mm -hmm. I, I see them trying to create a demilitarized, and when they say demilitarized, they mean uh, a military structure that has been denuded of its NATO um, foundations. Mm -hmm. uh, so there will be a Ukrainian military, but it's not going to be a NATO-friendly military. It denazification means denazification. Mm -hmm. And Putin has said, he told Macron the other day, we're going all the way. And the one thing I've learned about Vladimir Putin is he doesn't they bluff. Don't bluster, yeah. They don't bluff. There's no bluster. He said, we're finishing this thing. And finishing means denazification the old school way, uh, which is going to be ugly horrible but the russians aren't there to occupy ukraine they are going to use the syrian model and the syrian model is just a second that's okay but the syrian model is um sorry about that. the syrian model is to surround and then let the internal government solve the problem and so the problem of denazification in the big cities other than Lvov, and even in Lvov eventually is going to be turned over to whatever Ukrainian what, government comes in. Whatever they um, you know, But it's going to be Ukraine. Russia understands that it, you can't occupy Ukraine. That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think The Russian is. goal for Ukraine is to create a Ukrainian version of Belarus with a compliant strongman in charge whose military is aligned with the Russian military. And in doing so, you create this nice physical buffer between NATO and the Russian border, which is what Russia wanted all along. Um, so that, that's what I see happening. But I don't see the conventional occupation with occupation forces. I don't see that happening at all. As soon as Russia destroys the Ukrainian military and denazifies, they will secure the border, and then they're going to get out. And they're going to let the follow-on government deal with the problems. But denazifying is a big job. I mean, that's a big job. That's not a that's not it, a small job. Not really. It's no. a big job if you're going to uh, apply the rule of law. Yeah, right. I, see. I don't think the Russians are applying the rule of law. Right. I think the Russians have already said these people are condemned. Right. And I, I'm not gloating over that. It's horrible. Yeah. But it didn't need to get this way. Zelensky didn't need to empower them. The West didn't need to, 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 to coddle them. I mean, the fact that American soldiers and Canadian soldiers traveled to Ukraine and trained the Azov Battalion. Yeah. We trained the Nazis. Yeah. Um, 
is is sickening, sickening. And uh, do you? Okay, final, 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 final question. Um, you, you, uh, do you, do you think of this as a, like a success for the U.S. in any way, like in the sense that they've created some firm break between the West Europeans and Russia, or stop no, the a, Nord Stream pipeline, or any? This is a strategic failure for the United States on every level. Okay. The first thing they've done is they've, um, you know, Russia is going to win this war. Yeah. And in doing so, Russia is redefining the European security framework in a way that makes uh, NATO and, the, and, and, and American domination of NATO uh, untenable in the long run. Um, the other thing they've done is uh, Russia is in the process, thanks to this Russophobic uh, spree going on, Russia is, is being forced to decouple from the West. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, that made it difficult for Putin to re- reorient towards China is the fact that uh, over the past 30 years, Russia and the West have become very integrated. Right. And, um, and, and from the Western perspective, that was the best thing we could have ever done. That's how we exerted the most influence on Russia. But we have now divorced. And you've saved Putin the problem. It would have been politically difficult for Putin to divorce from the West. But we divorced for him. We made it easy. So now Putin is taking a look at all everything being severed, the divorce being done, and he's going to put a wall there, and he's going to pivot to China, and he's going to fulfill everything he said he was going to fulfill in that five thousand word statement, joint statement he uh, issued with uh, uh, Xi, Xi Jinping on uh, February fourth, the one that said we uh, reject the singular polarity, we reject the United States as a supreme power, we recognize a multipolar world. Uh, we reject European domination of global economy. Uh, we are forming a trans-Eurasian economic union that will achieve a, an economic strength beyond anything that Europe and the United States can imagine. Boom, there it is. Thank you, America. We just made Russia and China the future of the world because America is not going to be. At some point in time, I expect Putin to announce his counter sanctions, which he couldn't announce so long as there was this interaction. But now that the world has decoupled, Putin is going to hit the West with counter sanctions and cyber targeted cyber attacks that are going to destroy the economies of Canada, the United States and Europe. Just wait for it to happen, man, because it's going to happen. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be painful. And, um, you know, I don't know how long Trudeau can stay in power after the Canadian economy collapses. But Joe Biden ain't going to be reelected in 2024. I can guarantee that. The Democrats are going to get sweep from Congress because I want the Republicans in. I despise them as much as I despise the Democrats. I'm just saying that James Carville back in the 1990s, the, the political advisor to Bill Clinton, told Clinton to stop talking foreign policy. There's only one thing the American people care about. It's the economy, stupid. And the economy is about to get wrecked. And any politician whose fingers are, are seen to be dipped in, you know, this, this murky mess we call the economic disaster that's looming is going to have a very short lifespan as a politician well on that happy note scott <laughs> uh, i pass my oral exam no, definitely definitely know. we pass okay. you with uh with specified revisions i believe is what we usually do uh oh well, maybe with no revisions maybe with no, no revisions what's a specified um, revision <laughs> a specified re- usually they don't say no revision unless it's like you know they really want to show off normally they would just say fix this little thing on this page and this little thing on that page okay okay i accept that yeah i accept it (laughs) yeah to give you the idea that you know we were we really read your work in detail and and so on and also you're not perfect (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) it's like it's like it's like an afghan rug yes (laughs) every afghan rug has a imperfection purposely put in gotta have a because man cannot be perfect that's right (laughs) Um, okay, thank you. So listen, we've made some pre- you've made some predictions here. I think you have to come back in a few months and see what, how they've panned out. Absolutely, because that's part two. The exam isn't complete unless the predictions are tested. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> thanks so much, Scott. Okay, thanks. Have a great day.